You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn J-Town. In this series, we're following Jesus as he calls us to take on his yoke so that we might experience true flourishing. Good morning, everybody. Because I'm not quite sure how this is going to go, my name is Tony. And, uh... Right? Some of you don't know who Tony is. This is Tony, right? So now you know, Tony, Brian. Tony, Brian, right? No offense. Okay. So what do you do when you're uh, mapping out? You're mapping out a preaching plan for the Gospel of Matthew. And you, kind of, you come to John, sorry, you come to... <laughs> You come to Matthew 14, the death of John the Baptist, you know what you do? You plan a week out of town, and then you get somebody else to come in, right? I'm not saying that's exactly what Lyle did, Um, and I can't really prove it, but I am up here, and it is Matthew 14, and the text is, in fact, the death of John the Baptist, Uh, which, as I was preparing for it, um, I don't know when it was, I was reading on it, and a guy said... Yeah, I think his first comment was, this is not an edifying text. I'm like, yeah, I've read it. And so that's the comment. Of all the comments I read about this text, that's the one that sort of stands out in my mind the most. But, you know, it could be hard with a text like this not to just treat it like historical information. Right? I mean, what do you do with a text that's just sort of recounting, recounting um, this, you know, this, the death of John the Baptist and Herod and how it all transpired? But it's important that we don't just read this text just like a history lesson that kind of fills in a gap or just happens to tell us, oh, and by the way, here's what happened to John, right? So we, what we want to do today is look at this text in Matthew 14, and what we're going to look at is the consequences of faith, or, or faith has its consequences. And that's what we see with John. Right, because in, in this story, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of break it down into two parts. First, there'll be kind of a backstory part where we'll look at the two stories that are interwoven. That is the, the story of John the Baptist that's interwoven with the story of Herod. Right, because in this text that we're going to look at, it's kind of reflecting back on something that's already happened. Right, that John has, by the time, so, so Herod hears about Jesus. We'll see this. And so it's reflecting back on how John died, but one of the things you get is this sort of interwoven story between these two contrasting characters that turns out to be a contrast between two different kingdoms. And then the second thing we'll do is we'll kind of unpack the consequences of both of those characters and see then kind of how this text really does, a, really does apply to, to us, which, you know, which can be tough with a text like this. So... Five years ago this month, on February 15th, 21 Christian men were lined up on a beach, forced to kneel down, and behind each one stood a man dressed in black, except for the one in the middle, with a mask on, all with knives. And these 21 men, these 21 Christian men, 20 from Egypt and one from Ghana, who had been captured by ISIS, were made to kneel down on a beach five years ago last week, February 15th. And as the leader 
stood in the middle, waving this big knife, right? So you have these, you have these, you have these men standing there, clothed, like clothed in black, and then with masks on. You have these guys kneeling. They're all in like orange jumpsuits, um, kneeling there. You look at that picture and think, who's in charge here? Right? Who has the power here? Who has the strength here? Right? And it would clearly be what? Now, don't give me like the insider answer, but it would clearly be what? Who? Right? The men standing. Right? But as, as these men stood there and as this, the leader waved this knife around, this huge knife around, ranting and raving and threatening about what they're getting ready to do and what, he's, what they are going to do to all infidels, these 21 men were there on their knees and they were calm looking. They were looking back and forth at one another. They were murmuring hymns, singing to themselves, glancing back and forth at one another, saying quiet prayers, even reported as a, a repeated prayer of Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me, Jesus, help me. And moments later, all 21 of them lost their lives. For the sake of their faith, what had they done? They had believed in Jesus. That's it. They had put their faith in Jesus. And as the world looked on, at least for a few moments, right? It didn't last long in the news cycle. They looked on and, for good reason, had great pity on these men, right? Because they, had, they were innocent. And they had been murdered by these sort of vicious killers. And they were and are vicious killers. But I don't think anybody looking on, who's not an insider, anyone looking on would say, those guys on the beach, that's where the power is. That's where the strength is. That's where the witness is. Nobody would look at it that way. But one person did. The Archbishop, um, or, uh, the archbishop of the church in, in, in uh, Egypt uh, who appeared in an article just last week, I think it was just last week in, in, in Christianity Today, as he reflects back five years ago on this, the anniversary of this horrible massacre. He reflects back and says this, the Christian message is a powerful one. You know, the world tells us now that it, that is the Christian message, is weak, that its time has passed, it has no place in the world, but in actual fact, whether it's in Egypt or Sri Lanka or Kenya or Nigeria, in every place where we've seen Christian persecution and martyrdom, it has been a testimony of real power. And that is what we give to this world, that testimony. That even with that backdrop, we do not, we cannot, we will not hate in return. Our hearts cannot be changed by what we're experiencing. And then he goes on to tell the story, this unbelievable story of the immeasurable forgiveness and refusal for vengeance, refusal for hate on the part of who? Widows and orphans of those men. 
who have only spoke of forgiveness for the men who savagely murdered their fathers and their husbands. One doesn't look like power, right? That doesn't look like strength. But that day on that beach was a modern-day example of the contrast between the two kingdoms that we see in the text we're going to look at today, which are sort of embodied in John the Baptist and in Herod. It's a contrast of two kingdoms. It's a contrast of faith over unbelief. It's a contrast of faithfulness over sin. It's a contrast of, it's a flipped contrast of power or strength, anyway, I should say, and weakness. Because it's the one on the surface who looks like, who has all the power, who turns out to be the weak one. And it's the one who is imprisoned in chains and murdered who is the strong one. Now, because we're familiar, we might think, well, yeah, that's right. Of course. It's always the person in prison who's the strong one, right? Of course. I mean, we're so casual, right? We can read this and we just be so casual because we're insiders. But that's one of the things this story does is it reveals the contrast and the consequences of life in these two kingdoms. And that's, that's what we're going to look at. That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at, we're going to look at the picture or the pictures of John and Herod as their lives were intertwined and how, and then the consequences. And then after doing, and then, we, then after doing that, we're going to try to see how we might apply, I mean, this rather horrible story. And you know what I mean by horrible? I mean, it's, 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 it's a horrible story. It's a story of a man having his, who's beheaded how this might apply to us today when, you know, when we leave here in an hour or so. Not that I'm going to preach for an hour. If you're like, don't focus on that. But when we leave here this afternoon, how will the death of John the Baptist affect us? Well, let's see. So if you have a Bible with you or there's one, should be one in the seat pocket in front of you, if you want to turn to it in uh, Matthew chapter 14. We're just going to read verses 1 through 12. I'd invite you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. This is John the Baptist, he told his servants. He's been raised from the dead. And that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had arrested John, chained him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, since John had been telling him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Though Herod wanted to kill John, he feared the crowd since they regarded John as a prophet. When Herod's birthday celebration came, Herodias' daughter danced before them and pleased Herod. So he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she answered, Give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. Although the king regretted it, 
He commanded that it be granted because of his oaths and his guests. So he sent orders and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Then his disciples came, removed the corpse, buried it, and went and reported it all to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you will open our hearts and our minds to hear and for me to speak what you are saying to us in this difficult text. Lord, that it wouldn't just be a a history lesson or some facts or just a, a somewhat interesting, though horrible, story about John, but that we would hear in it what you are saying to us to conform us to the image of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. You can be seated. All right, so let's, let's start with John. And we're going to have to do a little bit of backstory just so we have the picture of John the Baptist, you know, sort of in our minds, and we think about him in the Gospel of Matthew and how he's presented. So two things we'll say about John. First is he's a prophet. Now, he's not just any old prophet. He is, in fact, the last prophet. He is the last of the old covenant prophets of the Messiah. He's it. The end. John brings a whole entire era to a close. Everything that has been straining forward to God fulfilling his promises in the future comes when John walks in or out of the desert and says, there's one coming. And then when he sees him and cries out, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the whole world. John is bringing a whole entire chapter of centuries to an end. He's the last of the prophets. But he kind of has a foot in both worlds, right? Because he's there to proclaim the coming of the kingdom, and he's also... He's also there as the kingdom is inaugurated, right? As it begins with the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, right? And and like a prophet, you know, like a prophet, John has a message. Now, you can read a story about John the Baptist and think, okay, and, you know, but how do you relate to John the Baptist, right? Because, I mean probably not an old covenant prophet. And he's so he kind of angular, right, as a person, it seems like. And he's so focused. And it's easy to think, well, I mean, we can't really relate to a guy like John, right, other than maybe I like the outdoors or something, right? Because, you know, he lived out in the desert and he ate bugs, right, protein. There you go. Like, what, do you, what kind of protein do you want? Locusts for me. Right? As though, never mind, I'm going to get distracted on that. As though protein only exists in meat. But whatever the case. So, he's out in the desert. He's wearing camel hair clothes. He looks like Elijah. He looks like a prophet. In fact, Elijah, he's the promise of the coming of Elijah. But you know, John, and Matthew is really careful to point this out. John was not perfect. 
And so the picture we get of John, even later when he's in prison, John's not in prison because, you know, he was just perfect and he lived a perfect life. Even John, this is how great the kingdom that was coming is. Even John, the last of the old covenant prophets, the greatest, Jesus will say, we'll see, in, we'll see in a minute, Jesus says, you know what? Of everybody who's ever been born, there is no one greater up to this point than John the Baptist. That's a pretty good thing to have Jesus say about you. But even John is not perfect. Because, you know, when John was in prison, in Herod's prison, he's only in prison once, and that was the last time. When John was in prison, he heard about what Jesus was doing. Now, remember, this is the guy who had proclaimed the coming of the Messiah, who had seen him and yelled out to everybody, that's the one, that's him. He had baptized Jesus. When Jesus came down to be baptized, John said, you should baptize me. I, and Jesus said, no, 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 baptize me. That's John. But John's in prison, and he hears about what Jesus is doing, and he thinks, um, hang on. And so here's John the Baptist, and I'm quite sure that he probably wasn't thinking, you know what? You know what would be a great end to my life as a prophet? Prison. I'm aiming for prison. I'm hoping for it. And he's in prison, but you know, John is expecting a Messiah. And here comes, here's the one he, he identifies as the Messiah, and this one comes saying stuff like, you know who's blessed in this world? The poor. You know who's blessed in this world? Those who suffer. You know who's blessed in this world? Those who mourn. I'm sorry, What? I thought the blessed in this world are those who inherit the new kingdom, the greater kingdom of the new son of David who's going to come and to take care of our enemies and establish the kingdom of God on earth in Jerusalem. I, what do you mean? That's who's blessed. And, and John's hearing these things, right? He's hearing these things like, if somebody strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. What? Now, we might hear that and think, well, of course, right? But it's only because we're so familiar that we don't see, we don't sometimes see, I'm speaking personally, I should just say I. Because I get so familiar with the story, I forget how backwards it is to say, if somebody strikes you on one cheek, turn the other. And so John hears these stories, and he sends his disciples to Jesus you can read about this in Matthew 11. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said, are you the one to come or shall we look for another? Imagine John the Baptist sitting there alone in prison thinking what? I don't get it. This is not what I expected. Even John the Baptist And Jesus answered, this is such a beautiful answer. Jesus answers straight from Isaiah. Straight from Isaiah. Because why? Because I think that Jesus, I mean, I think that the, I, the message to John is this. John, listen. Listen to Isaiah. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended 
by me. That is the one who, if you put it this way, let me translate that into this. Blessed is the one who is not, who doesn't, this is the one who doesn't abandon me because I don't meet their expectations. But rather, blessed is the one who gets on board with the expectations that I'm bringing. And I think the way the story ends, that Jesus is absolutely confident that when he goes, when, when John's disciples come back to him and, and repeat this, that he will accept it. There's zero anything in the story for us to ever think that John took this word from Jesus as anything but yes, as confidence. So, after John's disciples leave, now, I'm just going to tell this story. After John's disciples leave, Jesus starts talking to people about John the Baptist. And they're like, he says, hey, what did you go out to the desert to see? A reed is like shaking in the window. So what did you go to see? Did you go to see somebody in great, huge, in, in nice clothes? And he says, I, you, know, you know, I look, look, you know who wears nice clothes? People in palaces. You went to go see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one who has written, bless, behold, I send my messenger before your face and will pre prepare the way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's John the Baptist, the prophet. Now, as a prophet, John had a job. This is the second thing. And that was to witness to the coming kingdom. But as a prophet, he acts just like the prophets did. In other words, he doesn't come and simply tell, talk, talk about prophecy the way we do, right? When we think of prophecy, we think of like just telling about the future, right? Whether it's in maps or charts or graphs or whatever, like here's when it's going to happen, even though Jesus tells us and the, and the apostles tell us that we, take, we can't know when these things are going to happen. We still sort of make a cottage industry about trying to figure out when these things are going to happen anyway. And so Jesus doesn't come. I mean, sorry, John didn't come saying, hey, guess what? In the future, here's all the stuff that's going to happen. Like the Old Covenant prophets, like the Old Testament prophets, why did they talk about the future? To preach repentance today. Not just to spin, spin sort of yarns about what's going to happen into the future. Ever. Never did they do that. It was always a message in the present about God's coming judgment and salvation. Always. So that people would hear it and repent or hear the word of condemnation of their sin. And that's what John did. That's exactly what he did. If you, want to, if you want to understand John better, just sort of dip into any one of the prophets and listen to them, and what you will hear is a voice that's just like John the Baptist's. And he, I mean, John took no prisoners when it came to telling people the way things are. As John was baptizing, the religious leaders of the day came to check him out, and John understood they're not here to get baptized. They're hypocrites. And so in Matthew 3, it says this, but when he, that is John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, you brood of vipers. I mean, hello. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid at the root. 
Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's John in the face of the religious leaders of the day. And it's that kind of thing that got him in trouble with Herod. So this Herod in our story, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about him a little bit more in a minute. He's a minor king, right? He's a, I'm putting my hands in my pocket so I don't do air quotes. He's a king, right, I'm doing air quotes right now, but only a minor one over like a small piece of real estate called Galilee and then a smaller piece called Perea or Perea. And so he has some power, but what he had done was he had taken his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, who, by the way, was also his niece, the daughter of another brother of his called Aristobulus. There's a big twisted story here. And John knows what's happened and says, you're guilty of breaking the law. Because Leviticus 16, 18 expressly forbids taking your brother's wife, right? In case there's any doubt about it, John has this text behind him. And the way it says this is he, John was saying to him, it makes it sound like he said it more than once. And this is what got him in trouble with Herod because just like the old covenant prophets, they didn't just come and sort of condemn sin in Israel. They came and preached a message of judgment about the nations all around them. And this is what John does. He speaks to, this, he speaks to the sin of this man and says, you're wrong. Well, Herod and Herodias, obviously, not super happy to have this guy, this camel hair dressed guy, this locust-eating guy, who people think is a prophet, talking about them. And so for that, for his faith in God, and simply for speaking the truth, John was put into prison, and he would never come out never for speaking the truth. It doesn't seem like a story of power and strength, really, does it? You think, well, if he, you know, if he just sort of toned it down a little bit. But that's how that story of John ends. And now we need to look at our second, our second person in the story, and that is Herod. Now, getting the Herod straight in the New Testament is sort of like working a Rubik's Cube right? I mean, except until you figure out the way, the only way to really work a Rubik's Cube is to take the stickers off and rearrange the stickers, right? Because it doesn't work the other way, trust me. I've tried one three or four times over the past, say, 15 years, and I can affirm that you can't work that thing unless you just move the stickers around. Seriously. I mean, you can throw it down on the ground and break it. That works really well. And if somebody has managed it, you can undo it, but to get it from, like, mixed up to solid, that doesn't work. Right, so trust, I mean, I'm serious, I'm an expert on not being able to work a Rubik's Cube. So the Herods in the New Testament, it's like the Rubik's Herods trying to keep them all straight. Right, so just really, really quick, there's no test afterwards. You have Herod the Great who threatened, right, to kill Jesus as a baby, right? He tried to trick the Magi into where's he going to be, and then he did horribly succeed in killing all the firstborn males of, in Bethlehem. That was Herod the Great. 
Then you had his, his son, his firstborn son, Archelaus, who when um, Mary and Joseph knew or were afraid of him, and they, so they moved up to Nazareth. That's how they got to Nazareth. It was because they were afraid of Herod the Great's son, Archelaus. And then you have Herod Agrippa I, who puts uh, James to death and then you, in, in Acts. And then you have Herod Agrippa II, who Paul stands before. And then you have our Herod, sometimes called Antipas, who you might know from this story. In Luke 23, Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. It's this Herod. Because this Herod was over, the, Jesus was under his jurisdiction. It's this Herod that puts John to death is the same one that Jesus is sent to. And when Jesus shows up, Herod says, let's see some miracles. Show me some miracles. Like circus tricks. And Jesus refuses. And this same Herod who puts John to death, he and his soldiers dress Jesus up in fake royal clothes, publicly humiliate him, and send him back to Pilate to be executed. That's the Herod in your text today. There is virtually nothing good we can say about him. And so, what we see in Herod, though, is we see the twisted, conflicted results and consequences of sin, right? So, he's weak, he's immoral, he's all wishy-washy, he's, he's of two minds, he's foolish, he's vindictive. And in, in, in Matthew's story, right, Matthew says that, that he didn't want to kill John, but in Mark, in chapter 6, Mark reveals that there's a whole story here where Herodias, it says in Mark chapter 6, and Herodias had a grudge against him, that is John, and wanted to put him to death, but she couldn't because Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous man, and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So I think what we have here is not a contradiction, but you put a whole, whole thing together and you get this complex story of sin that's both Herod and his wife, right? His illegitimate wife, Herodias. You get this complex story of a guy who is completely in two minds. He likes to John. He's interested in John, right? He likes him to, he likes, wants to listen to him. He's interested, but at the same time, he hates him. That's not contradictory, right? What is it? It's a picture of what sin actually does to a person. It makes them absolutely contradictory. It makes them what? Have two wills. It makes them have two minds. It makes them simultaneously interested in something good and simultaneously hate it. And, and we'll get to that in a minute. But that's the picture of this Herod. But he's the one who's strong, Right? But like one, comment, like one commentator said, like all weak men, Herod acts strong to hide his weakness because that's what weak people do. Right? I mean, Herod's sort of like, Herod's like the bully, right, who picks on people who he knows he can beat because he himself is filled with fear and shame and guilt. Right? Or Herod's like, Herod's like, the, uh, like the, the husband who puts on a brave face out, you know, on, the, on the outside, acts tough, but at home takes out all of his aggression and fear and whatever on his family. 
This is Herod, the man in charge, the man with the power, the man with the strength, the man who can do whatever he wants, at least in his little tiny corner of a little tiny kingdom in a little tiny corner of the Roman Empire. But where he is in that little tiny space, he's got the power. And so when this camel-haired dressed guy shows up and says, wrong, he's like, okay, prison. Now, just so you know, the Herods were not Orthodox Jews, but they had some Jewish background, but they were basically just Gentiled up, right? And so they did have Jewish background, and they understood, they understood Jewish customs, and the Jewish people expected them to uphold them and protect them, and they often did. They often did, and they more or less conveniently followed some of the things, right? But they're not like upstanding, upstanding citizens. They wouldn't have been well-liked. In fact, just as an aside, it's really telling that the Pharisees, the moral religious elite, conspire together with these Herodians, followers of Herod, to kill Jesus. They have one common enemy. So that's Herod. That's what they were like. And so John calls him out. Herod puts him in prison, but he can't kill him, but he wants to kill him. And what's worse, his wife really wants John dead. So there's this party, and it's, it's a wild party. I mean, it's basically like a pagan sort of scene. And there's Herod with all of his friends, and they're doing the stuff that happens at a party like this. And then out comes Salome. Herodias' daughter from her first marriage to Herod's brother Philip. And she dances. Now, we don't know what kind of dance it was, but I think we can probably guess that it wasn't a waltz, right? Or it wasn't like a line dance, which I have never done and would never do, but I do know what it is, right? And in the first service, because my daughter was here, I mentioned flossing and some other things just to sort of horrify her, that her dad was talking about stuff like that as though it's cool, but, you know, I won't mention it in this one. And so, we don't know what kind of dance, but you can guess, you can guess what kind of dance it is by the way it's described, and that is Herod, it pleased him and his guests. In fact, it pleases Herod so much, he's so sort of entranced by this girl, that when she's done dancing, he's like, man, what? That dance was something else. Ask me what you, ask me anything, I'll give it to you. Ask me anything. And in Mark it says that, that he said, you can have half of my kingdom. I don't care, just ask me. That's how much I like that dance. And she's young, she doesn't know what to ask for. She goes to her mom and it's like, hey, I can get half of everything. What do I ask for? And without a hesitation, Herodias says, Here's what you asked for, the head. Now, imagine this. This is a real story. This is not a made-up story. This is a human being looking at her daughter and saying, here's what you ask for, the head of John the Baptist. That's what I want. This actually happened. These are real people doing this. So she goes to Herod and says, yeah, I tell you what, dad, 
give me the head of John the Baptist. And now Herod's in a corner. Now, but remember, he's the, he's the king. He doesn't have to do what he's getting ready to do. But he shows his weakness in that because he doesn't want to sort of lose face in front of his guests or much less with his wife, right, who I sort of imagine is standing back in the corner looking at him like, what are you going to do? Because he doesn't want to lose face, because, he, he, because of his pride, but really because of his weakness, he caves in because he had made a promise. And so he sends, she's asked, he sends, he has John the Baptist put to death. Ultimately for what? And why? What does it go back to? Why is John the Baptist put to death? Because Herod, sometime earlier in the past, had decided to take his brother's wife. That's, that's why John died. In other words, on one level, right? I'm, of course, of course, in God's providence, I get it, but I'm just saying this, in sort of the chain of events, what led to John being killed was Herod's sin going all the way back to taking his brother's wife. That set the sort of, in God's providence, that set the whole chain of events in, in progress. That sin is what led to it. And what got, of course, what got John in prison, though, is speaking the truth. But you see what I mean? Those two things are combined. They're, 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 they're interwoven. Herod's weakness and sin and John speaking the truth and his faithfulness to God are interwoven into the story. And in so doing, they contrast not just two people, but two kingdoms. And so now we want to turn our attention. We want to turn our attention to the consequences, the consequences of faith and the consequences of sin. And we'll start with Herod. Now, one of the things we have to do when we read the Bible is not just gravitate to the heroes. I don't know if, if you're like me. I read this story. I'm like, yeah, I'm like John the Baptist. I always speak the truth to everybody regardless. I never back down about speaking about the kingdom. I always speak out. Or at least I think I do. Because I identify with John the Baptist. I immediately identify with the guy whose faithfulness to God led him into prison and led him to be put to death. I immediately think, yeah, that's like me. But I have to be really, really honest with you. I can see lots of me and Herod. And I think when we read the Bible, we shouldn't just gravitate to the heroes. We need to read the Bible not just at it, not just look at it, but look into it and see what it is the Bible is also exposing about us. And I think if we look at Herod, we see, we can see our own sort of behavior, our own sin. We can see the contradictory mess that sin makes us. How sin makes us totally irrational. We can say one thing and say another, like just minutes apart. And if we're confronted on it, we have no problem. Like, well, so what? It makes us simultaneously in two minds. And so what you see, what you see in Herod is as a result of taking his brother's wife, Herod is compromised by his sin. He's conflicted and he's forced ultimately to act kind of contrary to his own will. 
And that's what sin does. And we need to be able to look at the story of Herod and not just like curl our nose at him, but think, wow, you know what? This story opens up and exposes my own heart as I see sort of the ravages of sin in my own life and what sin makes me, what's, how sin makes me sort of like a walking contradiction of how I can wake up thinking, you know what I'm going to do today, and then walk downstairs, and things aren't just right. Instead of like just saying good morning, I look at Denise like, hey, what's, what's wrong with the coffee? What's going on? Oh, and good morning. And that's just a little tiny minor thing, right? That's just like the tip of the iceberg. You know, or all the things I'm going to accomplish, or all the things I'm going to do, and then I go out and basically do the opposite. That's what sin does. And we see it in Herod. And we can't let the story of Herod go by without opening our hearts to the Word of God that is there to open us up and expose us so that what? That sin can be rooted out and we can be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so now we can turn to the story of John and the consequences of faith. And there's just three things I want to say about John. First of all, as a background, the thing we see in John, right, is again, as I said, is the contrast of these two kingdoms, where the strong person in this story is not the one who has the power to put somebody in prison. It's not somebody who has the power to have somebody executed, murdered. It is the one in prison. It's the one in chains. It's the one who will lose his life. That's, that's where the strength is in this story because it's reflective of the kingdom of God, right? And so what you have with John, what you have with John is this sort of example, if you will, of what the kingdom it looks like. And the three things that come as a, as a consequence of John's faith are these. Number one, he's willing to speak the truth because of his faith. He's willing to speak the truth. Now, does this text teach you and me that what we need to do is we need to publicly call out public officials or anybody else constantly for their sin? Does it? Well, no and yes. Because we're not old covenant prophets. We're not giving this sort of public office Right? So, you know, we're maybe not called to have sort of John's ministry, but we are on whatever level that God gives us and whatever opportunities He gives us, we are called always to witness on whatever stage or capability or, or position or circumstance that God puts us in. That is the same. John might have a different sort of ministry. He might have a different sort of public ministry. He might have a different sort of authority. But he has no more or less witnesses than we're called to be in whatever sphere that we're in. And so John faced opposition. Why? Because he spoke out and his faith had consequences. Now, honestly... Sometimes the reason that my faith has no sort of public consequences, much less sort of anything close to what happened to John, 
is because the people around me don't really, really know I'm a Christian. I mean, I am, right? I teach at that school down the road where the Christians are, but, you know, it's not, it doesn't really maybe come up that much. I mean, honestly, sometimes I'm just so under the radar with my non-Christian friends that it just doesn't really come up. But our faith has consequences, and witnessing to Jesus in this world will have consequences. But the consequences come from what? Faithfulness to God. God. John could not stop being faithful to God and had to speak out. In that context, where, where Herod was, in this Jewish context, John was right to point out to Herod, you are breaking the law of God. And to call it wrong and to face the consequences. Secondly, as a consequence of his faithfulness, John paid the ultimate cost, and that is his life. But in this way, John becomes a living testimony to the call, to the call of discipleship. In Matthew 16, as we'll see in a few weeks uh, in this sermon series, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? So in John, we have a real-life example of what that looks like. Now, the call to discipleship, though, doesn't mean that you're only successful if you are a martyr. What Jesus is calling us all to do at the, at the, at the moment we follow him is say this, my life is subject to you and your kingdom, not me. The call to discipleship is essentially a call to leave one kingdom for another. To, to leave one kingdom where we think we're in charge to another kingdom where we surrender ourselves and our lives to the king. Knowing what? That it's not just like the dues you paid, but knowing the king has given you what? The, he has given you the gift of eternal life. That you already possess it. Right? This is, the, this is the strength of the kingdom. This is the strength of being able to stand up and witness for Jesus is knowing that you already live forever. It's not just something that happens to you after you die. It's not just something like, you know, when Jesus returns, you rise from the dead, and Jesus gives you like, here's some eternal life for you. No, it's yours right now. Already, you already possess it. It's not just the experience of it, of it in heaven. It is a gift that we have now. That it's already ours when we confess Jesus as Lord. See, that's the foundation of this call to discipleship. That's why Jesus can say, take up your cross and follow me. In other words, surrender the, surrender the rights to your life today. Surrender, surrender your desire to be your own king, your own queen, in your own realm, which is not going to last, and receive this gift of life and follow me. In the what? In the way of the cross. The way of sort of ultimate, if you will, weakness of the king of the universe dying on a Roman execution stake and in so doing, in so doing, rising and defeating once and for all 
the worst, most horrible, horrendous enemies of all, sin and death. But the cross is not an apparent sign of strength. And that's what we're called to, and that's what we see in John. Now, the third thing is this. The third and last thing is this. One of the consequences of John's faith is that he is immediately identified with Jesus. Because remember in the story, Herod hears about Jesus, and the story of Jesus and the character of Jesus and whatever he's heard about Jesus is so similar that he immediately thinks that's John. Now, yes, John chronologically came before Jesus, but the point is this. The followers of Jesus ought to be so identifiable to him that he's recognizable in their lives. I mean, maybe if there's one thing that you take away, that's the thing, right? That Herod heard about Jesus and immediately connected the dots to John, thinking, this is, it's like the same guy. And so that for us, we can think of it this way, and that is that our actions, our words, our demeanor, the way we treat others, starting not like three weeks from now when you're going to be in some event, but starting this afternoon when you're around the people who love you the most, who are around you the most, that today you would speak to them and act towards them in such a way that it is ministering Jesus to them. So they recognize Jesus and his strength and his power in you, right? So that when you're in your workplace, when you're at school, that people, even if they don't know, even if they can't, put the, they can't connect the dots, that Jesus is so recognizable that they understand there's something about that person. There's, there's something there. Right? It doesn't mean you have to like float around and have a halo and be pastel and, and like always sort of a little bit above the ground. It just means what? That we speak and act and follow in the footsteps of the one who says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him take his cross and follow me. So that that's how we minister Jesus to others, right? is by being like him. Now, it's not something that we dredge up, right? It's not something you're going to go and be like, okay, here's the five steps. I'm not going to give you the five steps of becoming more like Jesus. I'm going to give you the one step of becoming like Jesus, putting your faith in him and accepting his kingdom the way he brings it and accepting him as king, as the king that he will be. That's it. Five steps done in one step, and that step is faith faith, and that is believing, believing that rather than sort of sticking up for yourself, rather than sort of building your own kingdom, rather than looking first for like what's best for you, is that you follow in the footsteps of Jesus and minister him to others so that he is recognizable to others in you, identified with Jesus. That was John the Baptist, so identified with Jesus the King that Herod thought, it's got to be John. I want to end, close today with another quote from Archbis Archbishop Angelas. As he reflected in an interview that just it came out in Christianity Today just, just about a week ago. And he's reflecting back on what he was thinking one week after 
those men were put to death. I remember a reflection. I literally had one week later as I was asked or asking, where, where was the power in these young men who were kneeling down so honorably and so peacefully and with such resilience and grace or in the big men with big swords who had to cover their faces to remain anonymous. And it changed my understanding of power. And it showed that at that moment of supposed weakness and brokenness, the prayer that those men offered made them infinitely more powerful. The lesson I know as a Christian is that no matter how long or how dark or how cold or how oppressive the night is, it is always followed by dawn. There's always the other side of transgression. There's always the other side of peril. And we are in the hands of a mighty God who not only created us, but loves us even unto death and freely gives us resurrection. Faith has consequences. But, but such promises, such unbelievable, unimaginable, unmeasurable promises. And faith ultimately leads us to eternal life in the kingdom. We're not losing anything by giving up this kingdom. The only thing we're losing when we give up this kingdom is weakness, sin, and death. That's what you're losing when you give up this kingdom of this world. And what do we receive? The king himself, Jesus himself. Let's pray. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash J-Town.